The following podcast was recorded in 2021 and released on a separate platform. IC leadership, thought leadership, titles, current events, and technology may have changed and evolved since its original release. The intelligence community doesn't tell its own story. We let others do that for us. We let Hollywood tell it. We let journals tell it. We let Congress tell it. Uh, We don't speak up and actually talk about what it is that we do and why we do it and how we do it and how that benefits the intelligence community and the, the public good that is national security. So what we do isn't unique to us anymore is another part of what we need to think about as we try to engage in a different way and more fully with the American public, many of whom would be more interested um, in what we did and have a different perspective on what we do and how we operate if they had more information. The opinions and views expressed in the following podcast do not represent the views of NIU or any other U.S. government entity. They are solely the opinions and views of the speakers. Any mention of organizations, publications, or products not owned or operated by the U.S. government is not a statement of support and does not constitute U.S. government endorsement. Welcome back to the Intelligence Jumpstart. I am your host, Jane Doe. On this episode, Chris... NIU research faculty member and the director of NIU Center for Intelligence Extremists moderated a timely and fascinating discussion with NIU faculty members and co-directors of the NIU Center for Truth, Trust, and Transparency, also known as TR3. Dr. Deb Path and Dr. Bo discussed truth, trust, and transparency and what they mean for the intelligence community, their impact and value for democracy, and the challenges that these three pillars of our society are facing, especially today. I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to having this discussion with our two experts, Deb and Bo, on such a hot and timely topic. I'm just going to jump right in and to kick off, what is TR3, what is its purpose, and why now? Thanks, Chris. And hello, everyone. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm so happy to be talking about this stuff. Chris, to answer your question, U.S. national security depends upon public information support and understanding, but the public has been essentially left to form its own impressions of the IC based on movies, novels, television, reporting, computer games, you know, uh, journalism, you name it. Our proposed center, TR3, is trying to help frame the problem with related issues and generate some insights on how we can address some of these growing challenges. Uh, We'd also really like to provide the ODNI with fresh ideas to try to strengthen some of the bonds between citizens and the intelligence community. So we we seek to explore the intelligence community's complex changing relationship with the public. They've relied on us for national security, but they really just don't know how they come to enjoy that public good. And citizens are now an integral part of the national security mission, and we have a responsibility to bring them into the fold. So our proposed TR3 Center's mission is to address and help rectify misconceptions biases, and ignorance in how the American public is informed about the work and image of the intelligence community. 
and our vision is to undertake and sponsor research, encouraging and supporting the creation of a comprehensive IC-wide strategy for engaging the public, of course, within the national security, the uh, accepted national security limits. And you ask, why now? I think the question there is really, why not before? This is not a new problem. This is something the intelligence community has dealt with since its inception. In fact, in 1976, William Colby wrote that both exposure and secrecy are essential to a truly free society, but we must achieve a new theory of secrecy appropriate to our new society of instant communication, universal education, and mass opinion. So the public now has access to information they just didn't have before. And this can be pretty detailed information from legitimate sources that can provide accurate insight into the inner functioning of our our government. And that information could be wholly true, but it's not something that the public has heard before. And therefore, it just might not sit well with them because they're unfamiliar with how the government has operated all this time. That's a very valid conversation. And that's one that we need to have with the American public we serve. The information they receive also may be from illegitimate sources, from individuals or entities that don't have the facts or are portraying them disingenuously. And this dramatically increases the pressure because now we've got to convince the public of the truth as well as get them accurate information before we can even begin to have that very valid conversation that belongs within the democratic discourse our country deserves and and that we depend upon. All of those pressure points have been further intensified through unauthorized disclosures by individuals with a wanton disregard for protecting information that doesn't belong in the public focus. And here, I'm talking about information that will cause damage to our country if it ends up in the hands of our enemies. These are folks like Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning, and they have made constructive dialogue all the more challenging by haphazardly releasing a million pages of documents on programs that they didn't even bother to take the time to read, much less evaluate. So as government employees with a national security clearance, we have a responsibility to follow proper procedures to report suspected waste, fraud, and abuse. And it wasn't that Stone and Manning weren't satisfied by the outcome of their efforts using legitimate processes. They just didn't bother to follow those processes at all. So suddenly the public has all of this insider knowledge that they've never had before without the necessary context to evaluate it. And the IC doesn't have the reputation and the trust it needs to assuage public concern. We've ignored this problem because, quite frankly, we're terrified to question one of our fundamental assumptions, and that is that the value of the intelligence community is secrecy. Secrecy has become not just a method, not just how we do something, but also literally what we do. Many, probably even most people in the IC truly believe that our greatest asset is access to information that others don't have. And I really disagree. I disagree not only because that paradigm is is shifting rapidly uh, as the entire world begins to have access to these these data streams that just weren't previously available, but also because we have have something very few private entities can lay claim to, and that's objectivity. Our bottom line isn't money. It's decision advantage to policymakers. And our stakeholders aren't a corporate board. They're the American public. I guess to summarize... The velocity and the volume and the veracity of messages that we're all inundated with on a regular basis can easily and usually drown out a more authoritative voice or position coming from the government. And now we're more challenged than we were maybe back in 1976 when Colby first made his statement. So what you portray really sounds like a, a crisis to me. It sounds urgent. Is the crisis the intelligence community is facing any different 
than the crisis the rest of the government or even corporate America is facing. And and what, let me be more specific. I'm referring to the crisis of dis or misinformation and the the challenge of building trust and credibility in this environment. Yeah, so so yes and no, and I'll, and I'll start with no first. The world is facing unprecedented complexity. It's unbelievably difficult to predict the effect any one event, big or small, is, is going to have. And this is increased uncertainty. We as humans, as a species, we are terrible at dealing with uncertainty. So even if all of this information that we have is factually accurate, and it's not, we can't possibly process it quickly or comprehensively enough to make any type of sense out of it. So, and if all of this vast amounts of data weren't enough to completely overwhelm us and, and our human distaste for uncertainty, now we actually have to worry about the veracity and information of the data itself, as well as the motivations of the source or the provider of information. So you mentioned misinformation and disinformation. And misinformation is something that every human contends with just by virtue of being human. It's a form of confirmation bias that assigns credibility solely to information or interpretation that already agrees with what we are comfortable believing in. So our brains are struggling to make sense of all of these competing data streams. And as we were, we're searching more and more for clarity, we often end up with the sense that I am never going to be able to master this topic. So I'm just going to give up because trying to search is, is just getting me turned around in circles and, and questioning what I was questioning before. So I fall back on my pre-existing beliefs. And there's disinformation, and that's the rapid spread of false or misleading info with the actual intent to deceive. This is a problem for the intelligence community in the same way it's a problem for the rest of humanity. We have to parse through all of this crap that someone with malintent wants us to believe in order to try to figure out what the actual story is. But it's also a problem for the IC in a slightly different way than your average corporation. Foreign and domestic actors use disinformation to drive their own agendas, whether it's supporting a particular political position or undermining confidence in the government or national security. And in this sense, the intelligence community and the government has a reputation problem. And, you know, not to mention, thanks to the term of the use prediction, the, the public thinks that the intelligence community has a crystal ball and anything that isn't delivered with exact accuracy constitutes a failure. So the public doesn't know what to believe and their attention is being consumed by a total excess of data and, and a low ratio of signals to noise. And put another way, there's not enough of the good stuff and there's way too much of the crap. Unlike your average corporation, the public can't boycott national security. It, it doesn't have that option. So whereas other brands have issues with reputation or experience a crisis, you know, like Tylenol did when their product was tampered with in the 80s or McDonald's did when they eliminated the supersized meals. The intelligence community doesn't tell its own story. We let others do that for us. We let Hollywood tell it. We let journalists tell it. We let Congress tell it. Uh, we don't speak up and actually talk about what it is that we do and why we do it and how we do it and how that benefits the intelligence community and the, the public good that is national security. So since the IC interaction with the public is limited, and quite frankly, they're very suspicious of us. The public receives this information through a filter. They, they get bad information from multiple unreliable sources, which actually is quite ironic given the value the intelligence community places on sourcing. And they have no means of accessing actual reliable information from the primary source, which is the intelligence community, even if they wanted to. So how, how does the intelligence community build trust? Given all this disinformation and reputation issues and distrust, how does the intelligence community build trust when the mission is based around or cloaked in secrecy? Chris, I think to begin with, the question 
as it's worded, is a bit flawed. Because the ICs, the intelligence community's mission, is not based around secrecy. Its mission is first and foremost to provide the best, timely, and most useful information with which to assist policymakers who are dealing with foreign affairs and national and homeland security decisions. What is secret is how the IC, the intelligence community, acquires and analyzes, in part, some of what it collects and makes available. Therefore, our concern is principally the methods and sources that we use, particularly when they're covert or clandestine, that we believe demand secrecy in their execution and secrecy in their output. The issues, as Deb mentioned, that we confront are to dispel these ideas that are fed by fiction, movies, mistaken perspectives, that all of intelligence is rooted in secrecy, in spying, intruding on other sovereignty, perhaps civil rights and constitutional protection violations. That's a view that is too widely held and one that is quite simply not accurate. What the intelligence community needs to address now, in our view, is how to correct that misapprehension without endangering that element of our work, our modus operandi, that can only be successful if it remains hidden. One of the things that occurs to most of us who have been in this intelligence community business for a long time is the tendency to blame intelligence when there is an alleged failure of some kind. And at the same time, unlike businesses, which you referred to corporate America earlier, we can't advertise, we can't even disclose most of our successes. Because to do so is to lose the opportunity to repeat those successes and loss of the kind of sourcing, the kind of methods are uniquely ours, or the uniquely those, at least, of intelligence agencies. Now, the part of this, it seems to me, is that democracies actually don't like secrets. Colby had some of this in his rather poignant comment. But the ability of and the well-being of democracies to sustain themselves still also depends in part on knowing more about potential threats to the United States and its security than what can be learned openly and appear to be apparent. We've had very recent examples of this in Afghanistan, tragically, but this kind of thing has typified the intelligence community's tasks and dilemmas ever since we went into the business of intelligence a century or so ago. So the kind of things that we worry about, obviously, are foreign powers with mass destruction weapons, terrorist groups with malevolent plans, as we have seen with ISIS-K most recently. Countries trying to hide situations can negatively affect their publics and others, such as some countries trying to actually hide the outbreak of COVID-19, the pandemic that we're now suffering. I think too many people in the public tend to think that transparency is essentially something that is missing from the IC. They tend to see the IC, the intelligence community, as a secret monolith that, uh, despite its massive size and huge budget, often seems to publics and also to policymakers, congressional and others, to get it wrong too often and to get it too late. For a long time, issues surrounding 9-11, there was much made of this cliche of putting the puzzle together. My own sense is that this is the kind of thing that if you asked the public what a puzzle looks like, whether it's 300 pieces or 1,000, somehow or other they all fit together and they match the picture on the box. The problem with the intelligence community's challenges is 
there is no picture on the box. And that, it seems to me, is something that the public has a tendency to mis misunderstand, misperceive. So for years, going back at least to Pearl Harbor, through the fall of the Soviet Union to the 9-11 attack that I just mentioned, and now the chaotic conditions in the Afghan military and government's collapse and refugee flows, these are things that, even if the intelligence community anticipates them, it's too hard for us to anticipate them absolutely precisely. And we've seen an example of that most recently in the folding, basically, of the Afghan armed forces. Another element in this transparency issue that we hope to try to get a better understanding of is that even when we do get something right in the intelligence world, as we very often do, one example to me that is quite apparent was our anticipation of the violent dissolution of former Yugoslavia. The fact is that until that kind of information is released, or at least in part released from the archives, 30 years have passed. Only the historians are going to be able to say, oh, they did get it right, when most of the people who worked on it are either in retirement or are on the wrong side of the grass. We have a Freedom of Information Act, but that's only a partial remedy for unmet demands for transparency. And as the record would show, very often, even a response to a Freedom of Information Act request has a good part of the sensitive information redacted or blacked out. The dilemma remains. Let me give you a quick example. I teach a course on dealing with foreign intelligence agencies, and even an unclassified version of a 1950s, early 1960s history of CIA, which was heavily edited, has a chapter on liaison dealing with these foreign intelligence agencies. The only thing that appears in the chapter that has not been blacked out is that word liaison. Everything else has been obliterated. This is the kind of thing that leads me to believe that we need to figure out ways to move from what has long been inside the intelligence community, a policy and a culture of total risk avoidance to a much more meaningful but still difficult task of working our way into policy and an approach of risk management. That was a really great answer, and there's so much in there to digest. Uh, I'd say maybe three points in there that really resonated with me were uh, secrecy is not the goal. Secrecy is a critical, essential element of the intelligence community's work, but it's not the goal. Another one is that when we're successful, you don't hear about it. And, and what you usually hear about in the press are operational successes and intelligence failures. So when things are going well, the intelligence community is conspicuously missing in the press. And the last point that I really liked that you brought up was that concept, that, that idea of risk avoidance balanced against risk management. That sounds like a tender, delicate subject that everyone in the intelligence community has to deal with in some way, shape, or form every day. So thanks, that was a great answer. The intelligence community is big and has tremendous resources it brings to a wide variety of problems. And so someone, anyone might imagine or wonder, what's being done already and by whom? I'm Manoli Perniotakis, and I use Vice President for Research and Infrastructure. And this is this episode's Manoli Minute. 
The next episode you'll hear features Kathy Hackle, known as the godmother of the metaverse. The idea of the metaverse is one of those things that was envisioned for quite some time, but now it looks like the technology is caught up with the idea to make it something of a reality. It follows on such things as cloning and even space travel. One of the more notable early mentions of something like a metaverse, to include the coining of the term metaverse, came from Neil Stevenson's 1992 novel Snow Crash, which describes a virtual environment along a single road that runs more than 65,000 kilometers around the circumference of a virtual planet. In the book, visitors get to the metaverse through virtual reality goggles. Sound familiar? He also envisioned the use of electronic money in the book, which we now know as cryptocurrencies. He carried this theme over into a handful of his other books that followed Snow Crash, perhaps most notably The Diamond Age and Cryptonomicon. As an aside, Stevenson was, according to public records, okay, fine, his Wikipedia page, born at Fort Meade, home of NSA. There's uh, possibly a lot to be learned from fiction, and not just science fiction. Defense analyst Peter W. Singer has been arguing some time now for a new intelligence discipline, FICINT, or fiction intelligence, as a way for an analyst to better understand what lies ahead. This isn't just about science fiction. It could be any number of scenarios. It's a way to think creatively about the future and what could be, just like Stevenson did in Snow Crash. Thanks again for listening to Intelligence Jumpstart. For more information on NIU, please visit our website, www.ni-u.edu. pick up on some of that again, Chris, because some things are being done. The advent of the position, function, role of the Director of National Intelligence and uh, her office and staff that surround her and help manage the work of the intelligence community at large has a number of things underway, including a particular transparency initiative. The intelligence community through the Office of the Director of National Intelligence has a web page, intel.gov. It publishes on that something called the Public's Daily Brief, which is an unclassified, similar type document to what actually the President of the United States would see every day in a very highly classified version. But that at least gives the public an opportunity to see some of what the community is doing, some of what it is saying, some of what its priorities are. Individual agencies in the intelligence community, of which there are 18 at this point, are also engaged in a number of other things, and I'll just tick off some examples. Educational outreach is one of them, involved with curricula and research in universities and think tanks, the work of professional societies, of which there are several that deal with intelligence, including one that does intelligence education work. Some agencies are able to sponsor and manage internships. A number of agencies are involved with sending out both current personnel as well as retirees, most of whom are quite senior, in public speaking enterprises. Some of those same people serve as professors of practice and university faculty. And what that actually means is they don't necessarily have a wealth of academic background, but they have a wealth of experience in the business of intelligence. 
and to the extent possible, they can talk to some of that. There are also World Affairs Councils throughout the country, some of which have an intelligence issue and set of issues on their agendas. Obviously, the intelligence community and its public affairs offices in these different agencies does have connections with media. It does grant limited number of interviews, some of which are on background, some of which are on the record. There is every year a public unclassified threat briefing given to Congress by three or four of the leading personnel in the intelligence business, agency chiefs, including the Director of National Intelligence. The community has published Global Trends, which is a five-year outlook of things that might be anticipated in terms of the way the world might develop. That is public. That is on the web. So there's a number of different things that we are involved with. And the public may not realize this unless they're in college at this point, but a number of universities actually have introduced intelligence studies as part of their curricula either in the political science and government departments, in some cases as a separate entity. But there are some challenges with this. And first and foremost, in my mind, is we have a lot of things available, but the question is, how limited is that audience? And does the wider audience, or even part of that audience, realize what's there? The approach seems to have been largely, we're going to put something together, here it is, come and get it as opposed to how do you generate an approach that will push information out to the public? I mean, we've even toyed with the idea of, you know, Saturday morning cartoons, if you will, uh, or at least that kind of delivery. Could you get a program like this centered on uh, something in the public broadcasting system, which is also not universally looked at, as we know? But is there something that we can do to make our brand, our activity, our way of doing things more proactive, less passive in delivering the reality of the intelligence community and its work to a wider and to a younger public. One of the things that has been disconcerting is some polling done by Chicago Council of Foreign Affairs, University of Texas. This is now about four years old, but it shows that we have a largely positive reputation in the U.S. public, but that reputation is also weakest in the youngest age group. It's those millennials who are the least engaged, least convinced that the intelligence community respects civil liberties. That's not a good sign. That's not a good trend. That's not where we should be or where we need to be. As I think Deb made clear in her earlier comments, we know this, what I'm about to say, in fact, but we don't. I think, internalize it all that well or all that often. And that is when the government essentially had a monopoly on information, as it did long before television, sort of in the period of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Okay? A lot of the American public never knew that he was in a wheelchair. No television. You always see him in covered up or sitting at a table or something on old newsreels. That monopoly on information, and particularly now on intelligence even, is history. There's a world of commercial imaging out there. Who hasn't looked at Global Earth? The government even contracts with an outfit and others like Digital Globe to get commercial companies to do some of this work. You could even certainly get signals intelligence capabilities. Go out and get something to eavesdrop on another company or somebody else. So what we do isn't unique to us anymore is another part of what we need to think about as we try to engage in a different way and more fully with the American public, many of whom would be more interested um, in what we did and have a different 
perspective on what we do and how we operate if they had more information. And part of what TR3 Center is intending to do is to try and figure out ways to do that. So despite the issues you brought up, uh, much of this sounds very reassuring. And I know in my own experience that the um, Office of Director of National Intelligence within ODNI, the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, the Policy and Capabilities folks, and the National Counterterrorism Center regional reps all put tremendous time and effort into building public-private relationships. And uh, many of those relationships have been around for a very long time now. The next question is pretty loaded, and it requires some unpacking. I'll approach it from several different angles, but how does the IC become more transparent? So more specifically than that, what are the nuts and bolts of engaging the public, and what is involved, and why is it such a complex issue in the IC? So I'll grab that one first, and then, uh, Bo, if you want to you follow up with some heat after that, that that'd, be, uh, that'd be great. So, uh, Chris, I think first thing we got to agree that there's a problem, (laughs) and that actually might be our biggest hurdle within the intelligence community. Again, Bo mentioned that the IC doesn't have, its mission isn't secrecy, but we have such an extended relationship with secrecy. We were modeled basically on the Soviet Union, and we were forced to mature rapidly as a means of dealing with them. So the, the IC actually grew to mimic the system it was developed to and, and created to collect on and analyze. And we eventually evolved into this very closed linear system, which our colleague Josh Kerbel has written about at length. The U.S. wasn't alone. This was, this was not something that was just akin to us. Many other countries, Austria, Britain, France, Germany, so on and so forth, all established a permanent intelligence function way before the United States. And all of them were steeped in collecting and classifying all possible information. So if we want to change, if we want to actually acknowledge that secrecy is not really our our reason for existence, that's going to be antithetical to many, many people. Assuming we can get past that, once we agree there's there's a reason for transparency and that we need to agree, then we need to agree on a strategy across those 18 intelligence community agencies. This is not something the intelligence community is particularly adept at. We often operate as really very separate entities. We're, We're pitted against one another for resources and budget, for the attention of the policymaker. This has led to um, some pretty significant stovepipes across the community, as well as lack of cooperation. One of the things that was noted in the 9-11 Commission report, the DNI was created after that in 2004 through the passage of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, that super awkward acronym, ERTPA, um, and it oversees the integration of the intelligence functions, but the DNI also lacks some statutory authority. It's also lost more than one public battle to the CIA. So coming together to craft what amounts to an IC-wide public strategy, which again, as, as Bo mentioned, is what we're calling for in our center, that's going to be a, a tremendous internal struggle. And that's going to need to be settled before the real work of increasing our credibility with, within the public can actually begin in earnest. That second problem is going to be complex simply because of the sheer amount of preconceived notions that the public has formed about the intelligence community. Bo mentioned the the difference between the millennials and and the silent generation and and their view of civil liberties. Also complex because of something else we've talked about, the misinformation and disinformation. Democracy and a democratic discourse requires that reasonable humans take the time to learn the facts and debate them. But if those facts themselves are distorted, the results of those debates are likely to be convoluted. 
I think is a, is a good word for that. And they're certainly not going to be representative of the true state of affairs. I would just add a couple of quick points, and that seems to me that the intelligence community has an ingrained culture focused on secrecy, and has had for a long time. And how you get through that and over some of that without violating the required and absolutely necessary protections that our sources and methods demand remains a, a big hurdle, it seems to me. And the other thing that we have to keep in mind is in trying to do that, we can't just address ourselves to the American public. If you're addressing yourself to a public, you're addressing yourself now to the globe. You don't have the luxury of picking out this only is intended for U.S. citizens, U.S. ears, whatever. So that adds another level of complexity um, when you have to start thinking what bad things could happen out there if any number of foreign listeners, foreign partakers were to have this information. So uh, I, think, I think history has sort of outrun us in a sense of the way the world is developed in a globalization sense. And I'm not sure that we're just slow to catch up. I think we're not yet to the point where we understand fully how to go about this. You asked this question about how do we become more transparent in the nuts and bolts of engaging the public. That's really the aim of this center in part. And we're not the only ones doing this, by the way. But to get a better picture on what might be some different approaches, some new perspectives, some new avenues to engage the public without endangering the national security that we and they all depend on? It sounds like there's been tremendous progress since ERPA and the creation of ODNI, but stovepiping is still a very real issue, and we still have to counterbalance that with the protection of sources and methods. This leads to the next thought, next question, which is, who should be taking the lead on this? Let me just start real quickly with kind of the, uh, the book answer, if you will, and that is, this really belongs in the domain of the Director of National Intelligence and her staff, the large enterprise that she manages directly, as well as the intelligence community as a whole. That doesn't mean that this needs to be a centrally directed enterprise, but the impetus for this should be coming from the DNI, and it has been. I mean, this, she included this in her congressional testimony for getting her nomination approved in the Senate. So this is not something that is foreign to them, but it's something that tends to be relegated oftentimes to that's something for a rainy day project. That's something that we really need to get to, but in the meantime, we have all these other things coming at us that demand action, demand collection, that demand support to the president and to the cabinet, and that still remains our first priority, is that reducing the uncertainty that they confront as they try to make the best decisions for the country. We've discussed a lot of important, sometimes enduring issues, and they all merit attention and resources and effort and time. But what are the greatest challenges to the effort? How will you or we as a community address them? You know, we certainly have discussed a lot of, lot of challenges, probably a lot more challenges that we have solutions for. So I think beyond convincing the intelligence community that it needs a, a cultural rebirth, as well as convincing the public that we actually don't have mind reading capabilities, I think we need to convince or consider the policymakers themselves. I was having a great conversation with Courtney Weinbaum from RAND. Uh, she also researches on public relationships with the IC. 
And we were talking about this last week. Our country's leaders have some tremendously incredibly weighty topics to contend with at the moment, and and not the least of which is the ongoing global pandemic, the cyber threat from Russia and China, great power competition, climate change, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. We have to convince our IC leaders and policymakers that taking time away from these key national interest items is actually of paramount importance right now. There's a a quote out there. The Chinese character for the word crisis is actually made up of two other characters. One is danger and, and one is opportunity. I think John F. Kennedy was actually the first one to introduce this. Interestingly enough, that that's not the case. The Chinese character for crisis is, in fact, made up of the Chinese character for danger. But the other is, is not opportunity. The other actually represents a change point where things really start to grow, go awry. It's the point of no return, so to speak. We are at that point. We are at the point where if we don't do something about this, we risk the intelligence community's future. Bo and I actually talk about this in our article recently published in The Hill, which is entitled The Intelligence Community Silence is Deafening. The privatization of the intelligence community becomes a very, very real risk. We've already seen elements of this. SpaceX, which was contracted to provide NASA with cargo and crew transport to the International Space Station and has now grown into a $2 billion corporation with a thousand satellites in orbits and designs on Mars. So, so we need to get the IC on the same page to craft a strategy, convince the public it can believe and trust us, and also get policymaker attention to address the concern of privatization. Now, no one said this is going to be easy, but in, in order to get these, these other smart people invited to the conversation, we actually first have to start the conversation. And, and that's what we're doing right here and now. We don't underestimate the, the size of the challenge in front of uh, the intelligence community. And Our idea is not to provide all the answers or even maybe very many answers, but to generate more focus on this whole area of the nexus between the intelligence community and its various actors and agencies and the U.S. public. Uh, Both of you provided a bunch of great points. I guess looking at it from another angle or maybe boiling it down a bit, not everything can be the number one priority, but that doesn't mean that you can turn your back to fast emerging situations that may become a priority two or priority one somewhere down the road. And this is a really complicated set of situations. We're, we're winding down to the last question, and I really like this question because it gives us some opportunity to possibly end on a positive note, but I'll leave that up to our experts. What does success look like? What stories do we want to tell the public? Well, Chris, of course, you saved the best for last in a sense, and I put that in quotation marks. But that's that's the $64,000 question, obviously, and the one that this research center aims to confront as it evolves and deepens our understanding of the public's attitude toward and its biases concerning U.S. intelligence. Let's start with the name we've affixed to the enterprise truth, trust, and transparency. Truth has been distorted, falsified, misrepresented, and challenged in America as never before. One measure of success would be starting to turn the information assurance tide back to what the late Senator Patrick Moynihan said many years ago, everyone is entitled to his own opinions, but not to his own facts. 
If more people would begin to acknowledge that experts actually exist, are often correct in their judgments, and have the informational and intellectual equipment to generally know more about their own areas of specialization, does someone without that training and skill set, that would be a help. No one would go to a mechanic to diagnose and cure an illness any more than you would go to a medical doctor to replace your carburetor. There is a place for expertise. I don't like the word expert, but specialization serves its purpose. Americans also have a host of inaccurate, inflated, and highly fictionalized notions of intelligence. We talked about that before. They get their images from Ian Fleming, James Bond, John Le Carre, Tom Cansey, David Ignatius, and others. Clancy's action hero plus analyst Jack Ryan doesn't exist in the real world. Neither does 007 jumping from rooftop to rooftop to, re- to escape an assassin. This makes great film, great readable fiction, but it bears no resemblance to the real thing. Injecting more of that reality, even though it's more banal perhaps, into this mix of impressions and perspectives might help us. Espionage, we remind ourselves, is always an illegal act. It remains at the core of intelligence, but intelligence is a great deal more than human agents infiltrating and reporting on adversaries. Indeed, with the passage of time, there's more and more publicly and corporately produced intelligence available for the asking or for payment. We've already mentioned global imagery, signals intelligence for anyone, so forth. Success would also be a factor of being more transparent and widely accessible to those parts of the public that really do care to know more about the intelligence community, perhaps are even interested in potential careers in intelligence, or at least are willing to have their preconceived notions or biases challenged. That would be another measure of success, I think, in our terms. This could range from television exposure to public speaking to insider media accounts, enlightening folks with history and insights into IC exploits and so forth. Admittedly, a balanced picture would have to also discuss the failure to anticipate things like Pearl Harbor, Sputnik, the Arab Spring, the Soviet Union's implosion, 9-11 and the most recent cataclysmic collapse of the erstwhile government and security forces in Afghanistan. Keeping in mind that in many cases the intelligence community has recognized and reported likely developments only to have policy and decision makers either ignore those or to act on their own impulses, both political and personal. But the other thing is many of these are first-time events. There is no trend. There is no pattern. And that's one of the things that we always look for But it's the broken parts of those patterns that provide strategic surprise and are, in fact, the thing that we guard against as best we can as one of our highest priorities. Success will be a while in coming, if at all. Be hard to measure, other than with some public opinion and maybe published opinion monitoring. Despite American and government infatuation with metrics these days, no one measure or set of them will render a finding of intelligence community success. But Deborah and I and many others do know, however, is that the stature and reception of the intelligence community among the U.S. populace is in need of attention and repair. And without some form of treatment, the intelligence community's plight will only worsen. That's uh, our bottom line. For my part, I'd love to see a a spokesperson for the intelligence community and as something tangible, similar to the way uh, Fauci is a a spokesperson. I also would really love to see a television show that is that is sort of accurately capturing um, the intelligence community and what we do. But I'm afraid that might be tremendously boring and and no one would watch it. Ultimately, I think uh, we we won't really know whether we're successful. As as Bill points out, metrics are going to be difficult. I think we will absolutely know if we're going to fail. 
once again, there are so many great points in here. I really honed in on Patrick Moynihan's quote that you offered, Bo. I think it should be well taken, well absorbed and understood today because it just seems like the public is so anxious to accept and, and acknowledge alternative facts and to deem things fake news. And it can only lead to dismay and disorder. It's just not going to be a positive thing in the end. But at that, I'd like to thank you so much, Deb and Bo. We're all looking forward to seeing the great things that will come from your center and your research. This has been an, an enlightening and thought-provoking conversation. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Bo. Thanks, folks. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Jumpstart Podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. If you would like to learn more about a specific topic or issue, send us a note at nipress at niu.odni.gov. To learn more about NIU, visit our website at ni-u.edu.